Amen to that. Uh, you guys can go ahead and have a seat as you are. The four to six-year-olds can go ahead and be dismissed to their class in the back corner. And as they are rumbling their way on out of here, go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew. Just began our study in this great book last week, kind of on-ramped our way into it, kind of got our, our handle on what we're exactly we're looking at as we look at this gospel, uh, this testimony to the life of Christ. And we saw that it's exactly what this book is. It's an account of the life of Jesus, but not just a generic account, but a, an account that shows how he is good news for us. It's very personal. It's not just out there. And we saw how this played out as we skipped across the surface of the first 17 verses, which are essentially a kind of a family history, a genealogy of Jesus that goes back to Abraham. Today we're going to go back to that same passage and actually look at this genealogy. We didn't really do it justice last week. You guys didn't even get to hear me read all the names, which is part of the fun of it. Right? Um, and these, when we get to these genealogies, there's a whole bunch of them in Scripture, and they're very easy to, to kind of miss what's there. There's a, um, a saying, I'm sure you've heard it before, the devil's in the details, right? It's familiar. Well, that can be traced back to, and the origins of these things are always a little iffy, but we think back to Friedrich Nietzsche, famous German philosopher, atheist, famous for announcing that God is dead. He got it backwards, he's dead and God is not, but um, that's what he's known for, among other things. Um, but he is the one that we think coined this phrase, that the devil's in the details. Of course, he didn't believe in the devil either. Uh, what he meant was that you can have a big grand plan that can come undone by just a little detail that you miss here or there. But he actually was riffing off a phrase that had been in common usage in Germany before that. That was the opposite. That was God is in the details. So what Nietzsche does, he took that phrase and he just kind of flipped it around to say something totally different. But the, old, the German phrase that he took it from was meant to describe something completely different. It was meant to be an affirmation that our successes or failures hinge on the way that God works out his sovereign providence in the little details of our lives, that we're totally dependent on him. Very different from Nietzsche's idea. When it comes to looking at these genealogies, a lot of times... There's kind of a big point to them. We saw that a little bit last week, just basically tying into who Jesus is. But when you get into the details, there's some little nuances, little breaks from the pattern that actually show us more, or they add depth, they add layers that show us even more than we can easily miss if we don't look and see how God is indeed at work in the details. That's what we're going to do today. God was at work in the details as he caused Matthew to write this gospel. And he caused Matthew to highlight certain things. Certain things that we probably wouldn't highlight. Certain things that we can very easily just gloss over. But they help us to see Jesus as king. And to be, help us to begin to understand exactly what sort of king Jesus is. So let's go ahead and read. Matthew 1. Beginning in verse 1, we're going to go through verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. 
And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. At the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliad. And Eliad, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Matan. And Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, you promise us that all of it is important. It's essential for us. It is necessary for our life and godliness. Some passages are clearer with regards to that than others, and ones like this are some of the ones that are harder to see. So we ask for your help, and we ask you to help us see why you gave this to us, why it's so important, why it matters for us, why it helps us see Jesus clearly. I pray that you do that by your Spirit. I pray that your Spirit would work in my words and would work in the ears of us as we hear to do all that you intend to do with your word, that it would not return void, but you would accomplish all that you desire in your people this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we're not going to talk about every verse, every name in this genealogy. That would take a long time. In some ways it wouldn't because lots of these names we don't know anything about. A lot of them we know a lot about, right? It's a, it's a mixed bag as far as that goes. But many of these names simply serve their role in the big picture message of this genealogy, which is really to connect Jesus to Abraham, to show that he's Jewish, to connect him to David, to show that he's in the kingly line of David, to ultimately show that he's the Messiah. That's the big picture overall purpose of this genealogy. But when we get into these details, there's some gold that lies in some of the exceptions to the pattern. As you heard me read, it sounded pretty repetitive, right? Other than, you know, lots of name options for your next baby, right? Really good stuff in there. Right, but it was very repetitive, right? This was the same pattern. So-and-so fathered so-and-so, and so-and-so fathered so-and-so, over and over and over again, right? But there are these little breaks. There's breaks in that pattern, and those breaks are important. They're intentional. They mean something, and we're meant 
to notice them. And that's where the gold lies in these genealogies. That's where we see the layers and the depth. And when we look at those things, there's three main themes that we're going to see as we see these. The first one is that there's a huge emphasis, besides Jesus, Jesus is the point of this thing, but there's a huge emphasis on David in this genealogy. And there's a huge emphasis on David because David helps us understand Jesus, right? These details are going to point us more and more to David to say, hey, you want to understand Jesus? Matthew's saying, if you want to understand who I'm talking about, look at David, right? That's going to give you the clue of who it is that I'm writing about. So that's the first thing. The second thing, the exception we're going to see, is we're going to look at the women who show up in the genealogy. This is a genealogy that traces the family line through fathers, in part because it's tracing a, a kingly lineage, which passed down from fathers. But in verses 3 through 6, four mothers appear, right? Out of 42 generations, these four mothers appear, besides Mary at the end. She's got her own section, right? These four mothers. So why? Right? That's a break from the pattern. That's something different. Why are these mothers in there? Why does Matthew see it important to list them? And what do they tell us about the nature of King Jesus and his kingdom? And lastly, in verse 16, there are some details that are going to show us uh, the uniqueness of Jesus. As much as Matthew wants us to think about David and see Jesus through that lens, he also shows us that while David tells us much about Jesus, Jesus is unique. And he does things, and he is something that David could not be and could not do. So let's get into it. Let's start by seeing the emphasis of David here and what that shows us and how that helps us understand who Jesus is, who this Jesus is that Matthew is going to write so much about. So there's so many details here that revolve around enhancing this connection of Jesus to David. In, in a way, David is almost the main character. Jesus is the point of this genealogy, but, but David is the one who's kind of sprinkled throughout it. It's not to take away from him, but it's to help us understand him, help us wrap our hands around who is this person that Matthew is writing about. God worked in and through David precisely to give Israel and us a category to start to understand who Jesus is as the great king, to start to understand his significance. So some of these details, they emphasize David as not just a king, but the king par excellence. He is the king. He's the model king. He's the king that you want, the king that every king should be. This shows up in a lot of ways. David is fronted. He's listed in verse 1, before Abraham, which is odd because it reverses the pattern of the genealogy. In the genealogy, you go Abraham, David, Jesus. The beginning... It's flipped, where you go, Jesus, David, Abraham. That's unusual. Normally, you would do it the same way. But it's flipped to put David in front of Abraham because it's centering David. Abraham's important. Abraham's very important. But David is the key figure for understanding Jesus. Another thing we see here is that there are many kings in this genealogy, a whole bunch of them. The only one identified in the genealogy as a king is David. He's David the king. And it's not just David a king, it's David the king. Think about how we use this, right? If I tell you, hey, this is the place to eat in Colombia, what am I saying? Am I saying, like, this is the only restaurant in Colombia? No, I'm saying, hey, like, this, is, this one's on a whole different plane. 
All the other places to eat don't even compare. This is the one you go to. They are on a different level. That's what Matthew is doing with David. He doesn't just say he is a king. He is the king. If you look up king in the dictionary, you should see David's picture next to it. That's what he's saying with this verbiage, with the language, the way he's communicating here. So what Matthew's doing in some of these little nuances is that he is showing that David is the model. He is the one that brought Israel to its pinnacle. And a pinnacle that she has not been able to find since. He conquered her enemies. He brought peace. He brought prosperity. He brought glory to Israel. And ever since him, it has been decline. Matthew's gospel was written initially to a mostly Jewish audience. And when they hear David, and they hear him lifted up as the model king, they are like, yes and amen. They are all about that. They see David in this way. And Matthew is playing into that. He's like, yes, David was this model. He represents the good old days, the glory years for Israel. Everything they want back is wrapped up in David. That was the peak. Israel's a little bit like the 50-year-old guy in his varsity letterman jacket talking about how he won the big game as a junior back in, back in high school, right? That's what David is, right, for Israel. And Matthew's tapping into that. But he's not doing it for the sake of David. He's doing it for the sake of helping us understand Jesus. So there's a whole bunch of things that not just show who David is, but they all connect Jesus to him. So while he's showing who David is, he's... He's connecting Jesus to all of that greatness and glory, all those hopes that Israel had attached to David. He's saying, hey, they belong here. They belong in this guy that I'm about to write to you about. This is where you can put those things now. Right? This is a genealogy of David, of Jesus, but David gets listed more than anybody else. Everybody else gets one name listed. Abraham gets a couple. Right? David is listed at the beginning. He's listed at the end. Within the genealogy, he's listed twice. He gets counted as two generations. That's a very significant move if you're writing this. You're, he's very much pointing to David as the center of this thing. And he's pointing to David as kind of this model, this picture of Jesus. And then there's this interesting note in verse 17 where it talks about numbers, right? And this is really interesting connections with Jesus, right? In verse 17, he talks about how this genealogy is broken up into three sets of 14 generations. 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile, and then 14 generations from the Babylonian exile to Christ. This number stuff is very interesting. It's nuanced, but it's really significant, and it's, it's another way that, that Matthew adds depth to the connections that he's making. This numeric organization, it's intentional. Matthew didn't like just write this thing out and then get done and count, then count it up and say, oh, isn't that cool? There's 42 here. That divides by three. It's 14, 14, 14. That's neat. No, he wrote it this way, right? He wanted the numbers to add up. There are generations that are left out of this genealogy. And that's not to be deceptive. That's not to be untrue. That's how they wrote genealogies back then. The point of genealogies that were written in this time was not to be exhaustive, it was to show the connection, but they were organized in such a way to communicate a different kind of truth, not just exhaustive detail. And so Matthew picked these particular generations and this number of generations to organize it this way. That was intentional. That was on 
purpose. So why did he write it this way? What's the significance of doing it in this manner? Well, on, on the surface level, it captures Israel's history. Well, you've got Israel's rise from Abraham to David at their pinnacle, and then their decline from David all the way to exile, and then this time of kind of dis- diminishment and longing while they wait for Christ, while they wait for the Messiah. But there's more here even than that. And we have to understand something called numerology. Sounds really weird, right? It's just the science of numbers. And the particular type is at play here. There's something called gematria. Sounds even weirder, right? This is just the way that, the way that Hebrew worked is that each letter in the Hebrew alphabet was assigned a number value as well. It'd be like if A equaled one, B equal two, C equal three, D equal four, It wasn't magic code or anything. Everybody knew this. It wasn't some secret hidden knowledge or anything weird like that. It was just the way that they worked with their alphabet. And so part of writing well in Hebrew meant at times you would use both the words written and you would organize the language in such a way to communicate through the numbers as well, especially in poetic literature and apocryphal literature like Psalm. This is all over in Psalms. There's so much that they do with the numbers and things there to communicate more depth. You don't need it to understand the text. You can understand it fine with just the words, but it's neat to see how they add layers and add depth to this. And so where this comes in, practically for us, is that Matthew's using it for that purpose here. Matthew is an educated guy. We know that from his his work life. He had a career that involved education and details, and he puts it to work here. The Hebrew spelling for David is Dalit Wa Dalit. It's the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the sixth letter, and the fourth letter. Four, six, four. You add it up, it's 14. Right? So 14 generations, what he's doing is he's basically kind of putting David all over this genealogy again, right? That, that number is intentional because he's trying to, again, enhance this connection of Jesus to David for us. And there's another thing with numbers here that, again, connect it. So 3 times 14 is also 6 times 7, right? We're doing a lot of math, I'm sorry. Should have told you to have extra coffee, right? It's six times seven. Seven, you guys probably know this. This is a little less obscure. Seven's an important number, right, in, for, for the Jews, right? It's the number that represents perfection or fulfillment or completion, right? So we have all these generations with this kind of emphasis on David, and there are six sevens. And then we have Jesus. Jesus is the seventh seven, right? He is not just tied to David, Right? He is the completion. He is the fulfillment of David. He is where David was always leading. Right? This is where, if you were looking for David, this is what you're supposed to see. You're supposed to see Jesus. Again, you can get here without the numbers. Right? You don't have to know this. But you can just see all these different threads that Matthew is doing to try to make sure we don't miss this and to add beauty and depth to it. Jesus is the fulfillment of David. He is what David was picturing, right? He's what David was supposed to make you look for. That's Jesus. He is the greater reality that, Jesus, that David pictured, right? So this is where 
there's a, there's a commonality and there's, we start to see a distinction here, right? Matthew is showing the greatness of David as a way to show us the greatness of Christ, but he's also starting to show us the distinction. You know, David is, Jesus is not on par with David. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the thing that, that David was supposed to make us look for, the thing that we are longing for, the better, new, true David. And the distinction comes out as we see more details. And it's going to come out more and more, even throughout the book. But even as we look at more of the nuance in the genealogy, we're going to see more distinction between David, even while that connection is there. So let's move to the next kind of theme we see here. And let's talk about the moms, the moms that show up here. Again, this is a genealogy that runs through the, the father's line, right? Because it's meant to show the tie-in to the, the royal family, right? The kingly line. But in verses 3 through 6, we've got these six mothers listed. And this should immediately stand out to us. It's just guys' names everywhere. And then these, we've got these four moms. It's odd. It's meant to seem odd. It's meant to get your attention. It's meant to make you ask, why are they here? So what should we see? Right? Matthew's called our attention to it. What should we see there? Well, the first thing to note is that all of the mothers who are listed here, all the ones who are noted, they're all Gentiles. They're all Gentiles. Which is interesting, because in, in a lot of ways, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. A lot of scholars say that Matthew is the most Jewish gospel uh, because he relies so heavily on the Old Testament. And yet, uh, here, he's bringing in this element of, of showing that, hey, Jesus, he's this Messiah, this Jewish Messiah, this Jewish king. But he highlights these four mothers who are not from the people of Israel. These Gentiles who were brought in under various circumstances. And he's starting to clue us in on the nature of the rule and reign of this particular king. We talked last week about how Jesus being in the line of Abraham pointed back to the Abrahamic covenant. That there would be a seed from Abraham who would be a blessing to all nations. Right, we're starting to see little foreshadowings of that. These women represented the foreshadowing of the point was never Israel. The point was never Israel. The point was always bigger than Israel. It doesn't mean Israel has less. It was just meant to bring in everybody into this rule and reign of God. And we start to see it at first with these, these mothers who are intentionally and conspicuously highlighted. Secondly, there's another aspect. Not only are they Gentiles, but every single one of their stories is, quite frankly, scandalous in various ways. Um, these are the stories that if you're like a Sunday school teacher and you're teaching them to like the little kids, you're trying to figure out how to tell it honestly and not get in trouble with parents. Uh, they're, they're not uh, PG sort of stuff. Tamar, and this is maybe the, well, you know, you don't even need to rank them. They're all, they're all just a little bit shocking, right? Tamar, uh, Judah, the father of the tribe of Judah, is her father-in-law. She marries one of his sons. He dies. Marries the second son, which is what you're supposed to do, right? That, that was the way that marriage worked back then. If a husband died, you were supposed to marry off to the next son. That was kind of the responsibility, the commitment that the marriage involved. The second son dies. The third son, he's young. So Judah says, go back to your family, wait till he's older, then you'll marry him. But he's no intention of marrying him off to Tamar anymore. He's, he's done with this. He's done having his sons die, and so he's going to go a different route and leave Tamar out to dry. Um, and so Tamar finds out about this and um, 
tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her and becomes impregnated, and that is how the line of Christ continues. Right? This is not, uh, not your kids' movie kind of stuff, right? Like, this is, this is not the kind of thing you want to put in the, uh, the family history. Okay, so that's Tamar. Let's move on to Rahab. Rahab, another Gentile, she lived in Jericho. She's the first city that Israel conquered when they crossed into the Promised Land. She was a prostitute. Uh, but when the spies from Israel came in to scope out the city, she protected them. She kept them safe. She had heard about what the God of Israel had done. She feared him. And God protected her. When the walls of the city fell, she lived in the walls and her place remained standing. God protected her. All right, so there's Rahab, uh, the, the Gentile prostitute who the Lord saves and preserves and then puts into the line of the Messiah. We have Ruth. She's got her whole book, you know. She's, we got a lot about her. And interesting about her is she's a Moabitess, right? She's, she's from the land of Moab. That's, those are her people. And Moab is one of the countries that inhabited Canaan before Israel went into the land. One of the nations that they were commanded to destroy, to get rid of, to clear out of the land. So Ruth's presence in and around Israel is basically a reminder of the fact that Israel disobeyed God, that they broke the covenant they have with him. And she's involved in the story because Israelites married her, which was a violation of what God commanded them to do. So, so Ruth's whole insertion into this thing is a reminder of Israel's disobedience to what God called them to do. And the story is beautiful, right? We see, um, it's beautiful to see Ruth's commitment and love and care for her mother-in-law when the men of the family die and then to see Boaz's redemption of her. It's a beautiful story, but when you go back to the actual history of it, how the situations got started in the first place, it shouldn't have ever been there, right? There were all kinds of bad things that shouldn't have happened that led up to that story even being in our Bibles is what happened. All kinds of unfaithfulness from Israel that led to the whole thing. And then lastly, we've got the wife of Uriah. Right now, this is Bathsheba. That's her name. We know her name. It's not hidden, but... Matthew doesn't use it on purpose. And it's not to shame Bathsheba. It's not because Bathsheba is not worth, worthy of using her name. It's because of what he's calling to memory by using this phrase. He is not trying to make this story better. He's actually highlighting the bad parts of it. We talked already about this, this highlighting of David and who David is. The wife of Uriah is the counterpoint to this. Right? The wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, if you guys... This, is, this story is very well known. It's not as obscure as some of the others. David's on his roof when his army's off fighting where he should be. He's on his roof. He sees Bathsheba bathing from his palace, sends for her, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. I just pulled my music stand apart. And um, gets her pregnant. He tries to get Uriah to sleep with his wife to cover up what he's done. Uriah won't do it because he won't betray his fellow soldiers. So David has him murdered, and then marries Bathsheba. Really great, uh, it's the low point for David, this great king after God's own heart. And by referring to her, not as Bathsheba, he could just said Bathsheba and kind of left all that stuff in the background, but no, he brings up by name the guy that David had murdered to cover up his sin. He's highlighting the black part, the dark part, 
He's highlighting the skeletons in the closet, not burying them. So there's all this work to show this connection to David, to show a legitimate claim to the throne. And then we've got this, right? Which seems to almost work across purposes. So what's, go- what's going on here, right? What's going on? Why? And there's other women that Matthew could have put in to the story. He could have put Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or Leah. There's all sorts of women in the Old Testament that he could have put in. Jewish women, women who have good stories, whose, whose things are not as messy and sticky. But he goes here. Why? Well, if you're a typical king or politician or a person of power, this is the kind of stuff you want to hide. Right? This is the kind of stuff that delegitimizes you, that cuts down on your authority, your political capital. You want to bury this kind of unsavory stuff. You want to keep the skeletons in the closet. Matthew highlights it. Why? Well, Jesus is not a typical king. He's not a typical politician. His kingdom is going to go beyond the bounds of what is expected. It's going to be an upside-down kingdom like nothing we've ever seen before. It's going to go beyond the bounds geopolitically. Part of the expectation that Israel had for David is that he's going to make Israel great again, right? That's, that's their view, right? That's going to lead to this new golden age of Israel when the Messiah comes. Here we see that that is far too small a view, right? The Messiah is going to be great for Israel, but he's also going to be great for the Gentiles. He's going to be great for the whole world. It's far too small a view. And it's also a kingdom where the glory is not going to be maintained by hiding flaws, by hiding evil, by burying the messy stuff, by keeping the skeletons in the closet, by avoiding what is broken or unclean. No. The glory is going to come from taking what is broken and unclean and wrapping it into the kingdom as part of the glory. Right? This king doesn't have to hide and bury that kind of stuff. This king can go straight at that stuff and incorporate it into the thing and have it not be corrupted, tainted at all, but made even more glorious by it. There's no need to keep skeletons in the closet when you have the one who makes dry bones come to life. This is a radically different kind of king. He is not comparable to anybody else. I love how in, we're going to get into this later on in the gospel, right? But when Jesus runs around and he's doing his ministry on earth, and when he comes across people who are ceremoniously unclean, I think this is one of the most beautiful pictures of this. In Jewish law, you touch somebody ceremonially unclean, what happens? You become unclean. Right? That's how it always works. It always goes that way. Except for Jesus. When Jesus touches somebody unclean, what happens? The unclean becomes clean. And he's the only one who does that. He's the only one who does that. And that's a picture that's very little to do with ceremonial and all that. It's a picture of what happens with us in sin and what happens with Jesus in sin. Right? We are infected with it. Right? And we can't do anything to f- make it better. We can't do anything to heal it. But when Jesus encounters sin, what does he do? 
He washes it clean. He is different. He is a different sort of king. And so when these stories that make us squirm a little, make us uncomfortable, Jesus is uncomfortable with them at all. In fact, this is the very reason he came. It's because, like, don't miss it, guys. We are all scandalous. We are all scandalous. We may not make our neighbors squirm, but maybe it would. Right? If they could see every thought that goes through our heads, all the things we suppress and manage to hide, you'd squirm if you saw mine. I promise you, you would. We are all scandalous. And for a king to be good news, we need a king who won't bury the scandal, who won't avoid the scandal, but will come to it and will heal it. And that's who King Jesus is. His glory is not diminished by weakness and flaws. It's where he demonstrates his glory. So Jesus is a unique king indeed. And in verse 16, we find some more exceptions that begin to show us just how unique, right? We're starting to get a picture, but verse 16 really drives it home. In verse 16, we read this. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. This is one of the most obvious deviations from the norm when you look at the text, right? Everything has been, and so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, and so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. And we get here, and we have Joseph, the husband of so-and-so. Never talked about husband anywhere else. Even when the women were mentioned earlier, Pastor, it's always been the father of so-and-so. Here, it's the husband. This is, if anything, the most, this is the most shocking deviation and the most important. Right? It says Joseph is the husband of Mary because he is not the father of Jesus. Can't say that. The, the old school translations would say that, that the word would be begotten. Right? It's the idea that the, the person comes from your seed. Right? That's the idea. Matthew can't write that. He can't say Joseph begot Jesus because he didn't. Because he didn't. It would be untrue. The purpose of this genealogy, it runs through Joseph and it is meant to show Jesus' legal right to the throne. But it is also here, this nuance shows that it is his legal line, his legal right to the throne, but there's a break in the biological line through Joseph. This is preparing us for the virgin birth. That's what this is all about. This is preparing us for the miracle that Mary is going to conceive Jesus, not through any man, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew expands on this a ton right after, in our next passage. We're going to look at this a lot next week, so this is not going to be exhaustive on it, right? But, but this shows us two things just right away that we have to see. Uh, it shows us Jesus' identity and what he can do because of the identity. First and foremost, it shows us that Jesus is no mere man. He's not just a great man. He is God incarnate. He is the God-man. He is divinity clothed in human flesh. 
It's a radically different thing. It's a totally different thing, totally unique from anything that has ever happened before. And because he is the God-man, he can do what mere man cannot do. Jesus came to do something that no other person with a human nature has ever done, could ever do. The greatest have failed. David was Israel's greatest king. He conquered so many enemies. He brought so much peace and prosperity and glory to Israel. And what ultimately happened to him? He succumbed to sin and death. He is dust somewhere. That's where David is. Think of any great ruler, leader you can think of. Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Charlemagne, Genghis Khan. It doesn't matter who they are. They have all been defeated by death. Every single one. They've all fallen victim to the curse that sin brought. This unique birth of Jesus that we're going to look at more deeply qualifies him shows that he is able to do something that no other king could do. Save his people from sin, from death. Lots of people have delivered people from political enemies. It's been going on forever and it will happen forever. There's been all kinds of great generals and military leaders. Nobody has done this. Nobody has delivered people from sin and death except for Jesus Christ. Before his birth, the angel Gabriel is going to tell Joseph, this is precisely what Jesus comes to do. He tells Joseph, she will bear a son, speaking of Mary, and you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Again, guys, most of Israel is not looking for this. Most of Israel is looking for a Messiah who will save them from Rome. Right? That's what they want more than anything. But this is what they need. You can deliver people out of Rome, you're still going to die. Right? They're worried about the wrong thing. The big problem, the thing you actually need to believe, the enemy that actually needs to be conquered, is your sin. Not the political people out there. It is your sin and the death that's going to come of it. And that's what Jesus, that's what the Messiah has come to do. He was born for that express purpose. And he will do it. He will go on to live a perfect life. A life of perfect righteousness. The life that we cannot pull off for five minutes. He will do it for his entire lifetime. He will perfectly honor God in every way that he is called to. And then at the end of that life, he will go to a cross. And he will die a death. A death that is not rightfully his. It's rightfully yours. It's rightfully mine. Perfect people don't, aren't supposed to die. Perfect people get to live. The Bible's really clear on that. Jesus voluntarily dies in your place as your substitute. In the place of condemned, scandalous sinners like us, Jesus bears the wrath of God. And then he gives to all who trust in him his righteousness and that atoning work on the cross. He just gives it freely as a gift of grace. You can't earn it, it has to be given. After his life and death and resurrection and ascension to heaven, and after being on the receiving end of just that much grace, 
Paul's going to bear witness to the same words that Gabriel said. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Guys, just here in this, just this genealogy to start this book, we already are starting to see the outline of what we're going to see in these 28 chapters. Right? We're starting to see the outline of who this king is and the nature of this kingdom. And it's going to be very different than most people expect. It's going to be very different than what most people want. But it's going to be absolutely what broken, flawed, scandalous sinners like us desperately need. There are all sorts of things we want, all sorts of things that would make us more comfortable, all sorts of things we would like to be changed. But what we need at our core is we are sinners and we need to be made right with God. And that's what Jesus came to do. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's what this king is about, and that's what this kingdom is about. And that's what Matthew is going to be doing. He's going to be unfolding this and showing what this kingdom, this kingdom of forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation to God actually looks like and how counterintuitive it is and how upside down it is from everything we think about when we think about kings and kingdoms and glory and victory. But it's an inside-outness that we need, right? Because all oftentimes the thing we think we need is not the thing we need most, right? Jesus comes to do what we need, not what we want. And praise God that he does. Jesus is a great king like David. But he's a great king very much unlike David too, in all the best ways. Church, and that's what we remember every week when we get to receive the Lord's Supper, right? We are reminded of who this king is, and what he has done for us, what it looks like to be part of his kingdom. We partake of this meal. It's another way that God gives us the gospel, the good news of Christ for us, of Christ for sinners. So we're going to sing again uh, in just a minute here. As we do, the elements for communion are in the back. This is a meal for the body of Christ. This is for those whose faith and trust are in Jesus Christ for their standing before God. If that is not you today, please don't partake. Um, That's not because we want to withhold anything good from you. Uh, It's because it will do you no benefit, and we don't want to confuse you and make you think you're receiving something that you're not. Uh, This is a meal for the family of God who rests wholly in the work of Christ. If that's you today, I invite you to partake with us in this family meal, this family meal that Jesus is serving us today of his body and blood. Um, there's cups, they're stacked together, so the bread's on the bottom, so you only need to take one. The clear cups have wine, the purple cups have grape juice. As we sing, just go back, grab the cup, come back to your seat, and then after we finish singing, uh, David Beale, our church planting resident, he's going to come up and lead us through communion and what this is that we get to partake of and how God uses it as a means of grace to strengthen and nourish our faith. So church, let's stand and sing and worship and receive the elements. <laughs>